0: Well, tonight we have a special study prepared, you know, back before our winter break. We started a new Sunday evening study called Getting to Know the Old Testament. And our aim is just kind of go through the Old Testament, not verse by verse, but book by book. And each evening we'd take one different book of the Old Testament going in order and give a special introduction to it, covering like its outline, its purpose, its themes, helping you to just really get to know the, the books of the Old Testament Uh, their purposes, their message, both to enlighten your own reading of it and just to give you a greater awareness of God's Word. And so far, we've covered in depth Genesis and Exodus. I'm really looking forward to get beyond those into the books that people are less and less familiar with. That's not going to happen tonight, though. We'll, We'll get back to our Old Testament study shortly. But tonight is more of a special evening. As you know, tonight marks the beginning of our new Sunday night, Sunday nights at Berean, you might say since i 've been at this church we 've always had three corporate gatherings Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, all featuring typically in the past just me teaching an hour or something like that. But as the church has grown, it became harder and harder to pull off both Sunday nights and Wednesday nights largely because of, of the child care requirements so really a couple of years ago, we made a decision to start moving in the direction of ending Wednesday nights, replacing them with regional small groups or home groups and and that has happened, and in, in turn, we would then you might say you know double down on Sunday nights and pour more uh, effort and investment into Sunday nights, especially in the children's area, or because we've always just done child care, basically just babysitting for the hour. But we have an opportunity to elevate that to child ministry and use this hour where the kids are next door to pour in them with with ministry. And so this transition now has has happened. Our Wednesday nights are officially over. Home groups have begun. And regarding Sunday nights, today uh, marks the launch of that brand new Sunday nights kids program, which we're calling Discovery. And it's, it's children's ministry in the evenings. It's kind of like Awanas. That was all basically like the vision, although formal Awanas is a bit much for us to pull off at this stage. But it's our own version that features teaching time, Bible memorization, games, kind of like what you get, like a diet Awana, I guess you might say, or our own version. Uh, another big development, though, is we have a dedicated team. Leading this, there's 16 people that they're going to be there every Sunday night. The same people every Sunday night. There's no more rotation except for the zero to twos, but otherwise it's that team that have really committed to uh, to serving this church and the children of this church on Sunday nights. Now, of course, that means 16 fewer people in here essentially, uh, but they're happy to serve the Lord and our kids in this manner. We're thankful for them to do that, and all. it's, It's an exciting time for our church as it matures and grows and develops. And for the adults, our time here on Sunday nights won't change that much. And Sunday nights is still essentially our equipping hour where I'm not preaching a sermon per se, but more you know, teaching a lesson, instructing the church in the Bible or theology or, or something like that. Hence we'll eventually continue with getting to know the Old Testament. Now all that being said, for our time tonight, I thought it'd be prudent for just one night only, tonight only, just to teach you what our kids are going to be learning about for the next six months. They have a new curriculum, like this Discovery Kids program. That just is now forever, until the Lord returns. That's just the new Sunday nights. The curriculum for the next six months is something that's called the seven C's of history. That's what they'll be doing now through June. Learning about these seven C's over the course of many months, memorizing memorizing related Bible verses. Parents will be given take-home worksheets to help reinforce what their kids are learning as well. So, especially if you're a parent, it behooves you to get to know these seven C's of history and what they're all about. But even if you're not a parent, you know, this is just a great way for getting to know the big picture of the Bible. And that's what we want to talk about tonight. I mean, how do you see the Bible? Most people see the Bible as just merely a collection of short stories, tall tales, interesting episodes, and that's how most Sunday schools teach the Bible. It's just a bunch of interesting stories. It's a storybook, kind of like Mother Goose, it's just the Bible version. And, and that's what they remember. Well, what is the Bible? They think about Noah and the flood with all the, the cute animals. They think about the parting of the Red Sea, the, the walls of Jericho coming down. And there's a bunch of stories about Jesus. You know, he walked on water, multiplied the bread and the fish. He healed the blind and, and all that stuff look, those are all great episodes of Scripture, to be sure, and they can be taught on their own, and they each have valuable lessons. But you lose out when you miss the big picture, because they all fit into a bigger picture, a bigger story, the, the overarching narrative, the point of the Bible. And the whole thing has, has a point. The Bible has an overarching message and purpose. Everything that has been written has a place in that overarching message and purpose. And if we're going to teach our kids the Bible for all it's worth, if we ourselves are going to learn and study the Bible for all it's worth, you can't ignore that the bigger message. You need to see the forest among the trees. And that's what we want to do tonight. We've done a good amount of study on the Bible itself here on Sunday nights in the past. So you should know if you've been with us, like what the Bible itself is. What is the Bible? The Bible at its core, it's the special revelation of God and his salvation. You can put it like as simply as possible. That's what this Bible is. It's the special revelation of God and his salvation in human history. And that revelation though was not given all at once, but it unfolded. It was progressively revealed throughout thousands of years. The Bible is the record of that. And so naturally it has a flow, a progression to it. And when it comes to the message of the Bible, And the revelation of God and his salvation, there's a very clear beginning, middle, and end. And you need to understand that if you're going to interact with the Bible in a meaningful way. But to really get the flow and purpose of the Bible, identifying beginning, middle, and end, is not quite specific enough. I mean, the beginning, well, that's like the first two chapters of the Bible where everything is perfect in Eden. And the end, it's like the last two chapters of the Bible where everything is perfect in Eden restored eternal kingdom. Everything else is is that middle part. That's where the the, the bulk of the meat is found when it comes to the revelation of God and his salvation in human history. And so we need, you might say, an outline of the message of the Bible or the purpose of the Bible. That's a little bit more detailed. And that's what these seven C's are. They represent the major milestones in the unfolding plan of God, the unfolding revelation of who God is, and his salvation for us in human history. <clears throat> these seven C's was popularized by the Ministry Answers in Genesis. It's often said that history is his story. I know it's kind of corny, but it works at the same time. And well, the Bible captures this history, God's story. It's seen through the lens of God who aims to reveal himself to a people and, and redeem that people. And so what are these? seven C's that our kids are going to be learning about over six months. Well, they are creation, corruption, catastrophe, confusion, Christ, cross, and consummation. We'll repeat that later. Don't worry about it. But our kids will be learning about these seven C's again over six months in detail, learning about them, playing games around them, memorizing verses about them. But I figured as this is kind of the launch of This kids program and this new curriculum for them, whether you're a parent or not, it'd just be a profitable use of our time to give you the the crash course on what these seven C's are all about. Really is a useful way to uh, understand and think about the purpose, the flow, the big picture of the whole Bible. It has a bigger picture and you need to know it as well. And these seven C's are a great tool for summarizing. So let's do that. And we, we can get through this all in one evening. But we should begin. So the first C is creation. You can turn Genesis 1, uh, creation. And we just studied Genesis. So you you should know this. This should be familiar uh, to you. But there's really no shortchanging the first two chapters of the Bible. They're the foundation of the whole thing. They establish the essential worldview of Scripture. Everything was made by God from the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How did God create all things? No, he he speaks them into existence with his word. He just calls forth all things. This just the the, the mere fact of creation as it unfolds in Genesis 1-2 is already revealing much about God. That he exists. He has all power. He's the creator of everything we see and don't see. And there's power in his word. Look at Genesis 1-2. It says the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Before that, the six days of creation begins. God makes the heavens and the earth, but it's not finished. And the earth itself is formless and void or formless without form and empty. And the rest of creation is just how God forms and fills his creation. Creation was not yet good. You had a planet that was formless. It was an empty landmass. It was entirely covered with water. It was in darkness. There was no light. And so God is going to do something about all this. He's going to form and fill so as to complete his creation and make it very good. He's going to form creation to bring order out of chaos. He's going to create boundaries to separate the light from the darkness, the land from the sea. And that's what you get As Genesis 1 unfolds, in chapter 1, 3 through 5, God forms the darkness. Remember, it's formless. He's going to form it. He creates boundaries for the darkness by creating light. He doesn't abolish all darkness. He just creates a boundary between darkness and light by creating light. Separates the light from the darkness, creates order. Then in verses 6 through 8, Nine through ten, God forms the waters. The waters were without form, or the planet was without form. So he's going to form. Above and below, he's going to create a separation to organize the waters, you might say. And above, verses six through eight, vertically, he's going to separate the waters above from the waters below. And in short, that's just waters below. He's going to form them into oceans. The waters above is the atmosphere, water vapor. He's going to create the atmosphere. And then below God separates the waters to reveal dry land, verses nine and ten. He creates boundaries on earth, he parts, he raises mountains, he lowers valleys, dry land appears. You know, after day three, water is no longer ruling God's creation. It's no longer formless. It's it's taken shape, it has has been formed. But it is still void, it's still empty. And so, days four, five, and six are the days of filling. It's often said days one through three are the days of forming. He's forming, giving shape to the world, to the planet. But then days four, five, and six, he's, he's going to fill them. So, Genesis 1, 11 through 13, he fills the land with vegetation. And this, in God's design, doesn't need to be repeated. Because he programs what he makes to reproduce itself and this vegetation has seed, and it will refill itself. He makes a planet that is empty, but he fills it, and then gives it the ability to refill itself. So this world will refill vegetation. Day four, he then fills the heavens with lights, makes the sun, the moon, and the stars. These were made to mark the seasons, mark the days, create that border between day and night on earth. Day five, he fills the waters and the skies with animals. Verses 20 through 23. Likewise, they can refill themselves and reproduce. And then day six, he fills the land with animals. Verses 24, 25. And then, of course, he's going to fill the land with humans. Verse 28, you should know well. Uh, Well, verses 26 through 28, God makes man in his image. Verse 27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God made man his image. He made two in particular, Adam and Eve, and he gave them dominion over all living things. That's verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over everything on the earth. And so after day six of creation, it's no longer formless and void. It is formed and filled. Not not fully though. The interesting thing is God did not fully fill the earth with humans. He just made two. Adam and Eve. He did not completely fill the earth with humans. He said he made two and then he commanded them to, it was now their turn to do what? To fill the earth. They were to, in a sense, carry on God's work of creation and to populate the world. They were to be his mediated rulers of this world to rule over everything that lives, reflecting part of the image of God in their nature, to fill the earth, to rule over it. That was their commission. He left them some work to do as he, thereafter rested on the seventh day. He still upholds creation every moment, but his work of special creation was over. And all was declared to be very good. Adam and Eve, plants, animals, the planet, everything lived in perfect harmony with, with one another, with God. It was very good. And just kind of reflect on the theological significance of this first sea. We'll do that for all the, the seven seas, that theological significance of creation i mean it's vast but in short you even just look at the first verse of the bible in the beginning god created the heavens and the earth i mean it it already tells us there is a god this god existed before all things he's one who made all things he called them into being he depends on nothing everything depends on him he has all power to do this he has all knowledge to do this and he has purpose the, seeing that the vastness the complexity of this creation that there there 's clearly purpose there 's nothing accidental about creation like this or this creation account. it has purpose, and we also see that God has authority, being the maker, we depend on him, He has full rights and privileges over his creation. He can do whatever he wants with his creation. We take this for granted man likes to rebel against god but look he's the maker he sets the rules he can do as he pleases there's no contending with the maker thankfully he's good as it will be further and further revealed uh, but he has full authority over his creation to do as he pleases all right that's the first c creation and of course we're, we're going quick we're summarizing but that's kind of the point tonight just give you the, the overview secondly the second c is corruption it goes from creation to corruption. Good times don't last long. For a time, creation was very good. Man and woman lived in perfect harmony with one another and with God. Creation, before the fall, it was the kingdom of God on earth. It's a theme of the Bible, the kingdom. Some would say that's the theme of the Bible, the kingdom of God. What is God's kingdom? How do you define it? A simple, simple definition is simply... God's people living under God's rule, living in God's place. God's people under God's rule in God's place. God's people, Adam and Eve, were living under God's rule. They just had one command and they were in God's place, Eden. And all was well. How much time elapsed before creation and the fall? It doesn't really say, hey, it could have been a long time. Kind of get the impression it wasn't, but we don't really know. Nonetheless, there, there was a fall, and that's Genesis 3. You can turn there. Can't read this for time, but verses 1 through 7, you see, you know, you will know well the interaction with Satan, who took the form of a, a serpent deceiving Eve, and she took from the that forbidden fruit and ate and disobeyed God. And First John 2.16 says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world, In the same manner, Satan tempted Eve, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. Adam and Eve were in a state of unconfirmed holiness. They were holy, but not impeccable, which means they they were sinless, but they were not uh, unable to sin. They were able to sin. And Eve being tempted and deceived, sinned. She disobeyed God. That's one of the definitions of sin. And Adam likewise Uh, disobeyed God and sinned, but he was not deceived. His was a a more willing rebellion, you might say. The immediate consequence of that was a spiritual death, which is a separation from the glory of, of God. Adam and Eve were soon physically removed from the garden where there was a special presence of God. But even more so, they were spiritually removed from fellowship with their creator. And furthermore, the day of their rebellion marked the beginning of their physical death. That clock started ticking of their physical decay and ultimately physical death as well. And in response to their sin, God issued judgments and curses on Adam, Eve, the ground, Satan. In verse 16 of chapter 3, he curses Eve and women with the pain of childbirth, relational strife. That which was to be a great blessings became in part curses, childbirth, marriage, in verse 17 18, God curses the ground because of Adam. There will be hardship to extract food from the earth, which we need to live. There's, there's pain, there's toil, there's going to be suffering. And I believe God's curse was supernatural. Where he would be unleashing over time disease and disaster that were not part of the original created order. In verse 19, God curses Adam himself to uh, the futility of life. You're going to work hard. You're going to, you're going to strive and toil just to survive. But then you're still going to die. You're going to return to the dust. Just, this, this, just a futility of life that's part of the curse. But as you hopefully know, there's thankfully a little note of good news in the curse that comes with this second C. You know, verses uh, 14 to 15. Verse 14, God curses the animal Satan took possession of. But in verse 15, he reaches beyond the serpent to Satan himself. And he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise him on the heel. Remember we're looking at this with our study of Genesis, that God curses Satan, the one who, who corrupted this world with his deceit. And he promises him opposition and eventual defeat. This is good news that, that, This curse brought on by Satan, you might say, in his temptation would not last forever. One will come, this seed of the woman who will overcome him. And it doesn't say much, but it gives us enough hope, a ray of hope, even in the midst of the fall, that that this corruption of paradise, this this loss of God's kingdom would would end. And it could be restored. Kingdom of God on earth was lost on that day. God's people were no longer living under God's rule. They had disobeyed. They were no longer living in God's place. They were removed from Eden. Uh, But there is hope that the kingdom can be restored. And so what's the theological significance of the second sea corruption? Well, it it really explains the human condition. Because, well, everyone after that has been living in this state of corruption. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. So, Corruption, decay, sin, it, our sin nature, it extends to us all. And this is the explanation of why things are the way they are. All are spiritually dead, cut off, without hope. This is why it started here. It explains what's wrong with the world, the world as we see it today, where we live in our, part, or our place in human history. It still explains why the, things are the way they are, why there is sin and sickness and suffering and death, disaster. That's all not good. That's not how it started. It started very good, but something happened. And well, this is what happened. There was a spiritual rebellion. That's accountable. The Bible confirms this is wrong. Explains how things came to be. But it it still gives hope, a glimmer of hope that paradise or the kingdom can be restored. Through one whom God would provide. But it won't happen right away. The next C is catastrophe. 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 And after the fall, God largely left man to himself without intervening. Man multiplied over the face of the earth, but so did man's sin and rebellion. The depravity spread unchecked. At this time, there was no government. There were no. There was no police. It was a time of anarchy. And so, as depravity spread, violence, bloodshed filled the earth. Look at Genesis six, verse. Five, which gets into this section on catastrophe, and that refers to the flood, of course. <clears throat> Genesis 6: five, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Things had just multiplied and gotten much, much worse. So God determined to show his justice, his wrath on the earth. Verse 7 of chapter 6. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. From man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky. from i sorry that I've made them. Creation had become so corrupt that God had determined to, to start over. He was going to uncreate, you might say, and recreate. But in his mercy, he would save one. One man, Noah who is found to be righteous, and his family. And God devised a means to preserve life on earth, not fully uncreate. Genesis 7, he reveals himself to Noah, who builds the ark, large enough to hold two animals of each kind, each type on the world or on the earth. But then the waters come, Genesis 7-11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on the same day, it says, all the fountains of the great deep burst open and the floodgates of the sky were opened. This was no doubt a global flood. You look down verses 17 through 20. Uh, you know, the flood came upon the earth for 40 days. The water increased, lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth. The ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered the water prevailed 15 cubits higher, and the mountains were covered. God was, was uncreating. Remember, in creation, after he made the planet, it was formless and void. Land was there, but it was covered by water. And as a side note, if you take earth's surface and you You raise every valley and you lower every mountain so that the world is just perfectly flat and of the same level. There's enough water on the planet to cover the earth almost two miles. The whole planet. And God was merely reshaping and it was now again formless and void. He'd wiped out all life. It was formless and void once again. Except for the ark, he had made a way to save some in his wrath. All hope was not lost. Representatives of mankind and animal kind were saved in God's mercy. And he was going to repopulate the earth. The waters receded. The earth takes shape again. Likely a a new shape. We believe this was radically new. That the, the flood was not a gentle event. But a catastrophic event. God provides a boundary between land and sea again. The world is going to be repopulated. It's a sense, in a sense, like a recreation. And in a way... And Noah is like a second Adam. You get Genesis nine one. God even commissions him. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, "Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth." There's that that commission again. But Noah, as you know, would prove not much better than Adam. He would have his own fall of sorts, and nothing would really change. Pre-flood, post-flood, uh, man's depravity would be put in check. As God himself in chapter nine institutes government, he institutes the death penalty. He puts a check on the widespread violence through government, but man's heart is unchanged. That really gets into the theological significance of this third C catastrophe. I mean, for one, you see an expression of God's wrath, his power, his righteousness, his justice. God is a just judge. And if he were to wipe out everyone, like this, he, he's only just, he's doing what is right. Everyone was receiving what they deserved. God, it's his prerogative to judge. And when he does so, he only does what is right. But thankfully, we also get a little preview, like like in, in creation, there's a little glimmer of hope. We get a preview of his mercy, where he just determines to save a righteous remnant. And all need saving, but only God's grace can provide that. But you know, if people are to be truly saved from the wrath of God, they need more than an ark. That's clear in Genesis eight twenty one. after the flood, what God himself says, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. The Lord said to himself, I'll never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. People to be saved, they need more than an ark. They need new hearts. For now, though, Noah, his children, they get off the ark, they repopulate, but this world will still be corrupt and cursed because the earth will be repopulated by sinners. They still inherited from Adam that sin nature. Rebellion will continue. The kingdom will not come yet. And so you get into the fourth sea now, which is confusion. Confusion. After the flood. The descendants of Noah did indeed repopulate the earth. They multiplied, but they didn't scatter. Instead, men united together in rebellion against God. They wanted to make a name for themselves. This is reflected in the the Tower of Babel incident. You can pop over to Genesis 11. Verse 4, it says, the people gathered. They said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. This is just an episode of man coming together, seeking his kingdom, his glory, and his name. And God himself knew, making man in his image, when they were united together like this, intent on one purpose and one mind, there's really no stopping them, so to speak. No limit to the the magnitude of of their evil and rebellion. I mean, being corrupt, they're not going to do good things. With their unity. God says of them in verse 6. Of Genesis 11. Lord said behold they are one people. And they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do. Will be impossible for them. And so really. Partly as a mercy. And partly as a judgment. God confuses their language. Scatters man throughout the world. Verses 8 and 9. Now after this event. In Genesis 11, that the confusion at Babel. After this, and we learn this back in Genesis, into Genesis 12 and beyond. After this, God is really going to move forward the progress of his revelation. Revelation of who he is. Revelation of his salvation. You know, so far, we've seen the problem of sin, which brings catastrophe. It brings confusion. God's kingdom was lost on earth. But God's going to redeem. He's going to restore his kingdom, his rule on the world. And if you remember, God initiated that plan through one man, Abraham, later his seed, Israel. And so throughout the rest of Genesis, Exodus, and beyond, we find how God, he calls Abraham to himself. And later his people, he forms his people, Israel, into his holy chosen nation. He enters into a covenant with them. He gives them his law. He brings him into his holy land, the promised land. And when you think about it, you put this together, you find that Israel was at that time the latest expression of the kingdom of God on earth restored. The rest of the nations were to, to come to know the blessings of the one true God in seeing an expression of God's kingdom in Israel. God's kingdom is God's people. In this case, it was the descendants of Abraham. Living under God's rule for them it was the law. Living in God's place, they were in the Holy Land. Israel was an expression of God's kingdom on earth. God ruling over his people in his place. And the nations were to see that and come to know this God. And God had revealed himself and declared his intentions to save and to bless through Israel. But look, with just a few exceptions, and really just a few exceptions, Israel failed uh, as a representation of the kingdom. They had the externals of the kingdom, but, but never the internals. They didn't keep God's covenant. They didn't heed God's law. They took for granted the promised land. You know, most definitely Israel in the Old Testament was a far cry from the true, full expression of the kingdom of God on earth. And so the more you study the the unfolding revelation of the Old Testament, the more you realize that this fourth C, confusion, really still is the best term for pretty much the rest of the Old Testament. It's a time of confusion. God was making strides in progressively revealing himself, his nature, his plan to save. But man and Israel were still largely just lost and confused. If the time of the patriarchs, there was a chosen line, but they were marred by serious sin and betrayal and deception. Exodus is a highlight, but then that same generation is worshiping golden calves and, and failing to enter the promised land because of unbelief. You have the period of judges after that, which is even worse. I mean, it goes back to a time of anarchy. Israel was technically in the land, but they were not blessed because they were not living under God as their king that's the theme of Judges. Uh, in those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. God was their king, but they were not living under God's rule. Speaking of kings, you get after that into the period of the kings. And yeah, you have a few brief highlights the reign of Solomon, the reign of David, but you know, the vast majority of the history was not good. Even the good kings like David were marred by sin Most of the kings, though, were just outright evil and led the people straight up into idolatry. And so by the end of this time recorded in the Old Testament, what's the result? The expression of of the kingdom is again lost. That God's people are no longer living under God's rule in God's place. The temple is destroyed and they're exiled from the land. This is like another type of a fall from Eden. They're, they're, They're gone. This kingdom has failed and in judgment god god kicked him out as they had forsook his rule again and again so we can kind of put together a little of the theological significance of this fourth sea confusion and for one it shows there's just no hope in man man's unity man's systems man's governments they don't make the world a better place they just multiply rebellion and evil but here's the thing Even a perfect government. Even theocracy. Israel was a theocracy defined by God, set up by God, ruled by God, by God's law. They were brought into God's land. Even that is not enough, we find. These externals were good. The law was good. The temple was good. The land was good. But these externals were not enough. That man's sin problem ran much deeper. We find once again that... If man was really going to save a people, if he was going to restore his kingdom on earth, he's going to have to do more. You need more than an ark. You need more than a temple. You need more than the law. You need more than a land. He's going to have to do something more. And God was thankfully prepared to do more. And this leads right into the fifth C, which is Christ. Christ. God had always planned to do more. And when the fullness of time had come, he sent forth his son into the world. Galatians 4, verse 4. That he might redeem those who were under the law. Let I me mean, talk about a major milestone. There is only ever one way this fallen, broken, cursed world could be saved and redeemed. God himself was going to have to do it himself by his grace. And with the coming of Christ, well, his plan to now do it was in full swing. And to be sure, this plan was not new. He had been revealing this plan, well, since Genesis 3.15. Revealing more and more about what he was going to do. We made known that this salvation would have to come from above. A seed, a savior, a Messiah. Would have to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. So many passages that, that reveal this Christ and what he came to do. Just for one, turn to Romans 5. As a a sampling of who he was and what he came to do. Romans 5.18. To save man, God sent a new representative of man. He would be a new head of a new humanity. Where where Adam failed, this second Adam would succeed. Romans 5.18. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life through uh, to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many would be made righteous. And it goes on. But this Jesus, this second Adam, he was going to accomplish for us something to, to undo that curse, that act of unrighteousness that, that brought us all into corruption, he's going to be the one to to do something about it, to reverse that curse. The only way this could happen is if he was more than a man. And indeed he was. He was God incarnate. You know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. He was there in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was uh, God. He was in the beginning with God. But verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. This was Yahweh God Himself. Come down, dwell among His people, take on human flesh. Though free from the stain of sin, He was not part of the corrupt race. Being virgin born, He went on to live a perfect, sinless life. As John the Baptist recognized when he saw Him, behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came as the spotless Lamb of God. He would go on to display his power and authority. The same power and authority that God displayed in creation in Genesis 1, Jesus displayed in his whole ministry. He's healing all manner of sickness, disease, blindness. He's even raising the dead. He shows his power over creation. He made the rules of nature. He can break them and walk on water, turn water into wine, multiply bread and fish. And he displays himself as the source of truth. He's truth incarnate. He speaks God's truth. He's the divine logos, the word made flesh. Remember we said the Bible is the special revelation of God and his salvation. That's true. We need the Bible. But realize, you know, Jesus himself as a person, he is the highest form of God's revelation. The the person of Christ is, is higher than the Bible. He was, in Jesus, God was fully revealing himself and his salvation. He, he's incarnate revelation. And he came to reveal to us God and his salvation and to accomplish that salvation. So as you think about the theological significance of Christ, well, that could be, we could spend forever talking about that. But in short, just look, John fourteen six, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Well, that was no exaggeration. That's not an understatement. That's true. This is the only way. This long-awaited Savior had come. He's the only one who could bring us back to God, conquer sin and Satan and death, reverse that curse. He's the only one. But of course, it's not enough for Jesus just to come and live for us. If we learned anything from the Old Testament, God was going to have to do something more to, to change us, our hearts, our natures, our, deal with our sin. He's got to do something more. He's going to have to die for us. And this is why the, the sixth C, sixth C is cross. Cross. And everyone knows that Jesus died on the cross. But you might also know it's a very common form of execution. But what made his death on the cross was very special. Uh, what made his death on the cross special was who he was and what he was accomplishing on that cross. And the New Testament, in many places, explains to us and explores the significance and the implications of that death, a saving death on our behalf. I'll read just a few examples of that. If you're still in Romans 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, that God demonstrated his own love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In verse 9, much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That Jesus came and died for us to justify us, to save us from the wrath of God. And First Peter 3.18 says, for Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust, so that he might bring us back to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You know, in the Old Testament, God gave Israel the sacrificial system. Why did he do that? Because as he was calling this people to himself, there's a barrier between him and them and fellowship and restoration. That barrier was their sin. that, That kept them from the presence of a holy God. God in his mercy provided them with this sacrificial system that their sins might be dealt with. But it was an imperfect system. It was administered by imperfect, sinful priests. And they presented insufficient sacrifices, animal sacrifices. You know, at best, by God's grace, grace, these sacrifices could cover sin, but they could not pay for sin. They could not remove sin. But God would do this for us through the cross of Christ, where Christ would be our perfect substitute, sacrifice. A perfect priest to offer and a perfect sacrifice to substitute. And he was able to make a once-for-all atonement, paying our debt in full. Hebrews seven twenty-seven 27 says, this, this priest Christ, he does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He's the, the offerer, the offering, together as one, and just once for all, a perfect sacrifice. And whereas Adam failed as representative head of man and, and plunged us all into sin and corruption, the second Adam succeeded. He died on the cross and bore the full weight of our sin that we might be brought back to God. And on the third day, he rose again. Jesus rose from the grave. And this this proved God accepted his payment for sin. That full atonement had been made. And the wages of sin is death. But having paid for sin in full, drinking the full cup of God's wrath, the grave couldn't keep him. He had conquered, overcome sin and death. And he rose to life eternal and he leads us in that everlasting way. And so the theological significance of the cross, well, again, it shows the only way. This is what had to happen if both humans and even the planet could be restored for for the enemies of sin, Satan, and death to be conquered and overcome. This was the only way in the mind of God, in the plan of God. This is the only way. He's the only substitute for sin, the only means of forgiveness and righteousness, both of which we need if we are to be restored and reconciled to God. God gives this to us for free as a free gift we receive it by the means of faith in this Savior, and therefore, well, you want significance, you, you had better believe in this Savior. You better call out to him as your Lord and Savior that you might be saved from the wrath to come." Where Jesus said in John 5:24, "He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into a judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Speaking of that coming judgment, leads to the last C. Consummation. Consummation. The end of all things. It's amazing that even after Jesus came, he died, he rose. He's God incarnate. But the world at large did not recognize him and still does not recognize him. Still exists largely in rebellion against God. Does not want God as their king. Does not want to live under God's rule. Does not want to live in God's place. That even after Christ came, man's rebellion persists. But God presently is is calling a believing remnant to himself a new people. This is the church. And the church consists of all those who have received Christ as their Lord. And they've been born again in his image. And so now what you find is is this church is now the latest and the greatest expression of God's kingdom on earth. Still not perfect. It's not the final expression, but This now in all of history, the church is so far the greatest expression of God's kingdom restored. You have God's people, the redeemed, living under God's rule, the law of Christ. Only we're not living in God's place yet. That is still to come. But in the meantime, God comes to us. He makes us his place and gives us his Holy Spirit to dwell in and with us. We might live for him. And during this time, the church is to be occupied with worshiping the Savior, growing up in his image, spreading his gospel throughout the earth. You know, the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 19 and 20, that our mission now until the end is to make disciples of all the nations, that they too would know this Savior. In the end, this King Jesus himself will return to judge. And from the moment Adam fell, God if if he were being only just, would have immediately executed them and poured his wrath out on them. But in not doing that, he in being long suffering and patient, he was committing to tolerate sin and evil on earth. But God is just; he he must hold all to account. All evil and sin must be judged. And from that day, he put up a dam, a dam to just collect his wrath toward the sin of the world. And it's been building and building and building. And in patience, he's kept it back. But the day will come when when that dam will break, his patience will end and and he will judge this world. And in the return of Jesus, God will forcibly remove the wicked from the earth and usher in his kingdom on the world. We don't have time, but you can read Matthew 25 uh, for a preview of that judgment. He will usher in his kingdom on earth. And this will be a time where, where God will reign. The kingdom will come. The kingdom will be on earth. With Jesus as king. This will be the kingdom restored. If God's people the redeemed. Living under God's rule. is Christ there. And in God's place. A restored earth. A restored world. And this kingdom will give way to the eternal state. Where God will make a new heavens. A new earth. As the eternal dwelling of his people. And the, the consummation. It's the longing of all true believers and even creation itself, which, which groans and, and longs to be free from corruption, to be free from the curse. Kind of like we learned this morning. Romans 8, the creation groans. First Peter, or rather two, second Peter 3.13. He says, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That day is coming I read this verse at at Wayne's funeral on Saturday. It's previewed that coming day, the consummation, the end of all things is previewed in Revelation 22, 3 and 4. And let me read that again. Speaks of that, that final kingdom. New heavens, new earth and says there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and his lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him. They'll see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. The Bible starts in a garden, it ends in a city, but creation is is restored. Eden, paradise, is restored by this Savior. Sin, Satan, death will be abolished. There'll be no more. And truly, old things will have passed away, new things will come. And what is the theological significance of the consummation? Again, we talk about that forever. But suffice it to say, as we think about the Bible, it has a beginning has a middle, has an end. We are living somewhere like sort of in the middle, but learning about the end, we are to live now in light of the end. Because the, the story is written, it, it's over. In God's eyes, this is what will happen. We now need to live in light of this end. And so what kind of people ought we be in light of this consummation? The end of all things is near. and Christ is coming soon. And so we, as his people, should be diligent and prepared and faithful to to worship, to witness uh, with all the days he gives us. Well, these are the seven C's of history. And they really do a good job of capturing the flow and the unfolding progress of of the revelation of God and his kingdom, who he is, and his plan of salvation, his plan of, of restoring rule on this earth that was lost so many years ago. But one day, God's people will live under God's rule in God's place forever. The more you learn this, the more you can appreciate the majesty of the Bible. It's not merely a collection of of short stories and tall tales. This is the mind of God and and it is profound. And the, the more you can see that bigger picture, well, the better. Well, I hope that helps you if you're parents. Now you can help your kids when they ask you about the seven C's. And even if you're not, you don't have kids over there. Uh, it's still profitable for just getting a better handle on Scripture. Well, that's going to do it for tonight. So let me end us in a word of prayer, and uh, we'll see if these kids are done. Had a good first night, so let's pray. Our good Father in Heaven, we, we marvel at Your Word. We just marvel at You, and what you're, You've done with this world. You're, you're the God of of everything, the God of all existence, the Maker. And we need to just pause and remember and marvel at the one who just spoke everything we see into existence. That gives you full rights and privileges over us and our lives. You get to tell us what's true and false, what's right and wrong, what we ought to do, how we ought to live. But we have all gone astray from that and are under your your justice, which we see in the flood, for example. But Lord, we we thank you for that mercy. From Adam to, to Noah and to Christ, we see your mercy revealed, that you, you set about to show your glory in saving some. And those who would call upon Christ, the Savior who, who died and rose, that we might be reconciled, that the wedge of sin might be removed. And may we be those who cry out to him and now follow him with all of our lives. We thank you that, that the Savior has come. We're thankful that we get to live on this side of the cross, and we long for that consummation. And until then, may we be a people who lives in light of the end. Serving faithfully, our Savior, seeing his name spread throughout the world. And until then, we, we pray that you come quickly. We pray that you, you restore this world. You bring justice and righteousness back, that your kingdom comes. And so let that be all as our prayer. We live faithfully, but Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as is in heaven. In Christ's name we pray, amen.